Well, I invite you to open your scriptures with me to Psalm 33. Sean and I had a great visit with John and Megan, who gave their testimonies this morning. Uh, They invited us into their home, showed great hospitality. We heard the extended version of their faith in Christ, and what a joyous time that was. But my favorite question is when Megan asked how long I would hold her under. And, and I said, I, I typically quote the whole book of Romans while you're under. And so we, we joked about that a little more this morning. So what a joy to welcome new brothers and sisters into the family at Highlands. Uh, probably the, the greatest joy is that. And then the greatest sadness is seeing those whom we love move on. And we'll have to do that in our members meeting this morning uh, that follows this service. Um, So we have those mixed emotions, bittersweet, until we reach a place where there are no more goodbyes ever. So we're looking forward to that. Psalm 33, this is an invitation to praise God for his perfections, who he is, his word, his works, and his ways. Again, we already read the invitation to praise. I'd like you to look at that again. Just glance at verses 1 through 3. I'll not read it again, but I want you to just look at the wording and the invitation. This gives us a description of what biblical praise looks like. Men don't get to define what praise looks like to God. God does as He inspired human writers to put through descriptions. What is the first word? Shout. Okay, biblical praise is done so first vocally. And it's an exuberant shout. And look at the last word of verse 3, or the last two words. Loud shouts. This is an expression of joy. This is uninhibited joyfulness in who God is. And it's done with a specific attitude. Look at verse 1, the word joy. This isn't just any kind of shout. This is a shout for joy. And then in verse 2, with thanks. So you have joyfulness and you have thanksgiving. Those are supposed to describe the upright in heart in their praise to God. With a variety of instrumentation. Look at verse 2. Okay, so we're to give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, which was a stringed instrument, and make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. And this is to be done, verse 3, skillfully. Okay, not just haphazardly, or anybody that can hit the top, you know, the top string of a guitar gets to come up and just thump, thump, thump. No, it's to be done skillfully. It's supposed to display some of the beauty and perfection of who God is. And it is characterized by, look at verse 3, sing to him a what? A new song. Okay, we're going to explain what that, what that looks like in just a minute. Okay, that term, new song, is used six times in Psalms, one time in Isaiah and twice in Revelation. It is a verbal response through song of a fresh experience of God's steadfast love, a term mentioned several times, and a fresh experience of his deliverance. So therefore, a new song is a new reason to praise God or a fresh act of God in the history of redemption or a new occasion for rejoicing. A new song is new in the sense that it celebrates a new act of God's deliverance 
or a new experience of his gracious care in your life. And that's why I I believe this kind of singing, singing praises, has a unique way of revealing those who simply follow the cadences of religious practice. Because you can follow just the hollow cadences of religion and mouth words, but do you know one of the most difficult emotions to feign or fake or imitate? Joyful praise. Because when the heart is not attached to the praise, almost, almost anyone, even a child, can pick up the false flattery that it is. So here you have the invitation to sing joyfully with thanksgiving to the Lord. So let me ask you a question this morning, right here at the beginning. Does your heart have a new song? You specifically, does your heart sing a new song or a recent praise for God's evident work in your life? Because here's a truth. Disgruntled complainers do not have a new song in their heart. Those who stand in accusation of God's ways have no new melody in their heart of his perfections and his wisdom. And here's the other truth. All those in Christ, regardless of what season of life you're in right now, have a new song of ultimate deliverance. The two expressions in Revelation that they're singing a new song are directly connected to the lamb that was slain. We have that song. It really is the greatest of all new songs in our heart. Are you singing that song? Could your heart right now write a praise song? What is in your heart? What song would it write? What melody is there? Or maybe it's just the dissonance of doubt and fear and unbelief. But could your heart write a praise? I'm not asking if you can play an instrument or hold a note or join the music team. I'm asking, does your heart right now ring True with a praise song. Psalm 98 verse 1 says this. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Why? For he has done marvelous things. Have you seen that experientially in your life? This is exactly what the Apostle Paul prayed in Philippians 3 verse 10. That I may know him experientially and the power of his resurrection. And yes, the fellowship of his sufferings. Sometimes that's where our songs, our new songs come out is during those trials and those seasons of suffering. Let me let me simplify it. A man who truly loves a woman will not primarily talk about himself or how his needs are not being cared for. Not not truly love a woman. You know, sometimes we do that as a church. We magnify our own hurts and our own grievances. That's what we're making big in people's eyes. How we're dissatisfied, how we've been overlooked, how we're not cared for. But if you just put it in a human relationship, a man who truly loves a woman, who, who, who enjoys a growing experience and knowledge of who she is, will find new ways to express his love. His descriptions will not be bland or trite. He might include sort of the, the, the weather-proven statements of, I love you, right? That, that can almost never be oversaid. But there will be new expressions and unique quality of the person and kind of love that it is. It doesn't have to be weird. I was trying to think through weird new statements like, I love you more than the belly of a manatee is soft. Right. And I don't even know if the sea cow has a soft belly, but we were just in Florida and I love manatees. And interesting fact, uh, Columbus thought he saw mermaids. They actually believe now what he saw 
were, were manatees. And if you look at them in the water, they're, they're shaped very similar. It doesn't have to be that new, right? We're not just talking about weird, unique, but new, fresh expressions of love for God. Does your heart have a new song in it? The two instruments are simply samples of a large, maybe even endless variety of instrumentation. Psalm 150 lists eight instruments, so we know that Psalm 33 is not exhaustive. It is, here, here's, here's a way to explain it. It is descriptive rather than prescriptive. Prescriptive sort of defines and narrows and limits. Descriptive is, here's an example of what praise looks like. So Psalm 33, two instruments, Psalm 150, eight instruments. It is, it, pre, it, it simply shows you what it can look like rather than prescribe an exact style of instrumentation. Okay, that's just the invitation. Praise God like this and with this attitude. But now you come to sort of the inside of the sandwich, right? The intro and, and the outro, if you would, are the two pieces of bread. Inside now you have the meat of the sandwich. The reason for it is fitting for the upright to praise God, verse 1, is explained now in verses 4 through 19. And in those verses, 4 to 19, we are given two motivations to praise God, followed by three motivations to trust Him. And it's just before we get into this section, personal testimony, I needed this reminder. I personally needed Psalm 33 to bear weight upon my heart and shape my affections again. Okay, so let's look at what it does. Two motivations to praise God. Verse 4. For the word of the Lord is... And of course, now the psalmist is going to gather a cluster of words to describe God's character, His perfections, or His moral attributes. For the word of the Lord is... Here's the first word. Upright. And all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. I needed that reminder. In a world filled with evil and in a world that seems to let evil go, where evil people seem to prosper more than godly people, I needed to remember that God loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. You know, because God's word and work are all marked by uprightness, everything God does is upright and reliable. Everything he does. And if we fail to believe this, we will fail to what? If I fail to believe God loves uprightness and faithfulness and justice, I will fail to do what the psalm invites me to do. I will fail to praise God genuinely because I'm too busy accusing him. And Habakkuk got into that cycle. Godly people can accuse God. But ultimately, they have to reach Habakkuk chapter 3 towards the end where Habakkuk humbles himself with an upright heart and he says, you are God, I am not, I will wait. And even though the fig tree does not blossom, and even though there's no grain in the stall, and even though there's no sound of cattle, I will trust you. See, that's where God is bringing us. I find and I believe everything we sing on a Sunday morning. I have believed every word of every song we've already sang. And I believe every word of all the texts that were already read. But that does not mean on Monday a darkness can't cloud in over the soul. 
And that's why we have to remain in God's word, sensitive to his spirit, because Monday through Saturday can be dark. We need to go back and remember the primary motivation to praise God, like it says in verses one through three, is because of who God is. Let me give an example. The upright and humble in heart understand that their view of God's world is limited. Right? You, you don't even know what anyone or everyone, but you probably don't know what any other person except yourself is thinking right now. You probably don't know their motivations for why they did what they did in the past two days. You don't even know that. You don't even know that for 10 seconds of their life unless they have been open and transparent with you. Let alone you have never known all that everyone has ever done throughout all of history. And you certainly don't know why God has allowed what he's allowed. So how can we then stand over here like if we were God, we'd be ruling his world better and stand in accusation of him. And that's why right at the beginning, if we're going to praise God, we have to put those things aside and remember that he is upright in all his ways. And he loves faithfulness and justice. Every area this psalm touches, creation, history, geography, science, international affairs, military, can only be rightly understood within God's moral framework of who he is, his moral perfections. And this is who he is. He is upright. He is faithful. He is righteous. He is just. And he shows steadfast love. That brings us to the second motivation to praise God. Not only who he is, his moral perfections, but his creative power. Look at verses 6 through 9. Whereas the first section focuses on God's moral perfections, this section focuses on God's creative power. Verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses, sort of like a farmer would store his grain in a silo. God is able to lift up and store waters like that. Therefore, verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. And this is something we need to understand as we get to these texts that talk about God's creative power is that in Hebrew theology, they were not so much concerned with the process of creation or we would say the scientific curiosity of creation, but simply how it was set in motion. What power, who determined, who initiated everything that we experience today? That's what Hebrew theology focuses on. Anything that science can reveal and help us with, we will look as being in alignment with who God is. Okay, unless they're lying and they're trying to sort of tweak those facts. But from the Hebrew mindset, they're simply saying the one who creates controls. The one who creates governs. And it brings us all the way back where God set it into motion. Genesis 1, verses 2 and 3. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, there's the word of his power. Let there be light. And there was light. The one who creates controls. Therefore, the one who creates should be praised. God's eternal power and we would say his unique divine nature, who he is, are revealed in creation. The Apostle Paul does. He proves that in Romans chapter one, beginning in verse 20. He says this, 
for his invisible attributes. And it's interesting that Psalm 33, the first motivation for praise is God's moral attributes for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. Okay, when? When were his eternal power and his divine attributes clearly seen? Paul says, ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that they, sinners, are without excuse. Creation is enough to judge mankind for their defiance and rebellion against him. That's why this is one of the reasons we are invited to praise God. There is something about the galaxies and the constellations and the power of the and the power of water that inspires all should create fear or awe of who God is. What is interesting is there seems to be an allusion in Psalm 33 several times back to the Hebrews crossing through the Red Sea. And then you will have what is called the Song of the Sea. This is a it would have been a new song at the time because it was a fresh experience of God's deliverance. For example, in verse eight, it says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Look at verse seven. I want you to see this phrase. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. This term has already been used and I'll just read it. But this is the reference. Exodus chapter 15 Verses 4 to 12. I'll not read the entire portion, but I want you to just listen to this narrative section. In the Song of the Sea, it celebrates this. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And Pharaoh's chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Verse 8. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. So you have this allusion back to what became a new song of deliverance. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. But verse 10, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. This is one of the reasons we were invited to praise God, not only because of his moral perfections, but because of his creative power. And in that sense, the song of the sea was a new song, a fresh deliverance by the hand of God. So in that section, we saw that the steadfast love of the Lord is full in the earth because of his character and his works. Now we're moving into the second section of this middle sandwich where we are given three motivations to trust in the Lord. Verses 10 to 12 show us the perfect plan of God, where God chose a specific nation to align themselves with his purposes and glorify him. Look at verse 10. And when you're looking, don't don't overlook repeated words, because there is there is a parallelism here where two different words are contrasted. Right. So as we look at this piece of history, which has often been said, it is his story and somehow all the contours of life are part of his story. Look at the contrast. Verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel. There's one of the words of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans. That's the second word of the peoples. Here's the contrast. Verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans, second word. 
of his heart to all generations. Therefore, verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, referring specifically at this point to Israel, not just generally everyone. Sure, that that's a secondary application, but he's talking about Israel, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. And the point here, and we, we don't have time to develop this in detail, is that Israel's national existence was based upon God's divine plan. So let me ask you a question. When were they formed into a nation? When did the Hebrew people become Israel? Okay, it had, it had to do with this incredible picture when they were in slavery and needed what? They needed deliverance. Okay, they were in slavery and out of all the signs and wonders, there is one that gets a name and it's the Passover. And it has to do with the lamb and it has to do with its blood and it has to do with death passing over because the death angel saw the blood of a lamb. And then they are delivered. Exodus is a going out. They are delivered because the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, specifically Pharaoh, was taken. And they go out. And what does God have to do? Because they're cornered and the Egyptian chariot army is moving in and they start to complain. And Moses, with the eyes of faith, says, all you have to do is believe and stand still. Be silent. And then what happens? Because they're trapped between a chariot army, the superpower of its day, the greatest military the world had ever seen up to that day. They're trapped between them and the Red Sea. And God does what? He parts the waters of the Red Sea, stands the waters up in a heap, and they go through. And by divine creation, his creative power forms a nation that would have never been formed by human ingenuity or power. It had to be a divine creation, a divine birth of a nation, if you would. And that's why he's saying, I have chosen you. This is my plan. But here, here's what you see as you keep reading in the Old Testament. They become Israel, but Israel failed to live out their calling. Consistently failed to align themselves with God's desires. But what Israel did do is produce something also by divine birth, divine design, divine plan. And what Israel produced then was the greatest son Israel had ever seen. And what's his name? And Micah 5, 2, in a prophecy, in a predictive prophecy, will say, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are the least among all the clans of Judah, yet out of you will he come forth, right? A Messiah whose goings forth have been from what? From everlasting. Israel had the privilege of producing the greatest son Israel, the nation, had ever produced. And his name is Jesus who would become, and it's all connected in this, in his story, who would become the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the earth for our what? Deliverance. Therefore, we sing a new song about Jesus Christ because of his deliverance. Therefore, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen and as his heritage. Jesus Christ, a true deliverer, provided through divine miraculous birth for the purpose of delivering from the enemy, no, not the Egyptian chariot army, but from the, the, the last and the greatest of all enemies, death. Secondly, the second motivation to trust God is the Lord's knowledge. Look at verse 13. 
And I want you to notice all the descriptions of, if, if we would, the eye or the vision of God. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them, right? There it goes back to his creative power. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. Divine vision, which which is called omniscience, all-knowing, is a cause for praise because it means this. God's plan is unstoppable. Or if you go back to his moral attributes, it means this. Justice will always be fulfilled. No one is getting away with evil. No one will ever get away with anything in God's economy. Why? Because he sees everything. Verse 13, he looks down. Verse 13, he sees all. Verse 14, he looks out on all. Verse 15, he observes all their deeds. So why doesn't God mete out justice now? I don't know. And you don't know. So you've got to go back to the initial part. He is upright in all that he does. He loves faithfulness and justice and his ways are perfect. That's one of the motivations to trust him because he knows everything. Paul Washer stated this about the omniscience of God. He says the omniscience of God indicates. The omniscience of God indicates that he possesses perfect knowledge of all things past, present and future. And right away, I want you to stop there because because we don't have that. Only God has that. Therefore, only God really knows how evil fulfills his purposes in a righteous way. He possesses perfect knowledge of all things past, present and future immediately, effortlessly, effortlessly, simultaneously and exhaustively, exhaustively. There is nothing hidden from God. There is never the slightest difference between God's knowledge and what really is. He knows all the facts and he interprets them with perfect wisdom. That's one of the reasons we can trust God, because he knows everything and he has all power to do what he needs to do. Now the psalm moves to the third motivation for trusting him, and that moves from his plan to his knowledge. And look at verses 16 to 19. Praise of the Lord's might. Look at verse 16. And again, you're going to see an allusion back to a specific Old Testament event, which was a new song. And that is Pharaoh moving in on the on the Hebrews and God's preservation of them in a miraculous way. Verse 16. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. Put your mind in the mind of one of those elite Egyptian charioteers. What are you trusting in at that moment? You just came through some of the signs and wonders and your family has been affected. You're angry. You want vengeance. And you have been trained to dish it out effectively. And you're on one of the most advanced pieces of war equipment possible. And you have a war horse that is also trained for that purpose. And you are moving towards a helpless people who, by the way, just plundered you. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Here's why. Verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive. 
in famine. Exodus 15, verse 3, in the Song of the Sea, that was written as a new song after their deliverance, it says this, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. So, so whatever soft impressions you may have about Yahweh, they at least need to be countered and shaped and balanced by a description of the Lord as a divine warrior. And Exodus 15 verse 1 says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Verse 4, Exodus 15, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. What are you hoping in right now? God has us in a different situation. God has us in a situation where when we sang this morning, it sort of felt like we had cotton in our mouths. People are still staying home out of fear. We're not blaming them for that. But what are you hoping in right now? Is your ultimate hope that there is this cure for COVID-19? Is your ultimate hope in medical professionals? Is your ultimate hope in the fact that if you truly have pure trust in God, you won't get it? Those are all empty hopes. And this is exactly what Psalm 33 is pointing us to, because if it's not this, it's going to be the next virus or the next violent action or the next world war. And ultimately, it'll simply be age that takes you out. So what are you hoping in? What is your new song of praise for a fresh experience of God? The eyes of the Lord refer to his pleasure, his favor in those who fear him, who stand in awe of him. The terms death and famine are, are simply a parallelism communicating the same idea that the deliverance is not simply from disasters or death, but into a full and loving relationship with God where he delivers you eternally. That's why he sent his son. And that brings us to the conclusion of this song. Look at verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. And then it ends on a note of prayer. Verse 22, you'll notice the wording changes slightly. Let your steadfast love, let your unfailing love, let your never failing love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Psalm 33 closes by teaching us one of the primary lessons that God's people need to learn over and over again, and that is waiting on the Lord for deliverance. And that's difficult, but it is not without reward. Look at the two terms he uses, help and shield. The word, the word help isn't just helper as, as in a servant, but it's one who supplies a desperately needed service, a deliverer. So let me positively look. So if, if you are suffering, if you're having an attack, emergency medical helpers become your deliverer in that moment. Okay, that's sort of the picture now. Or if you are lost and you are facing near death, a rescue team is sent out who knows the terrain where you're lost in. They become a help to you, a deliverer. 
That's what God is for us spiritually. And he's also a shield, a protective covering. So this is why the psalmist can say in Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help, deliverer in trouble. And of course, Hebrews 4, 16, after talking about the, the glories and the beauty of Christ, it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Help and protection come to those who wait, hopefully, for God. Again, when the Egyptian army was moving in, this is what the people said. In fear and panic, they said this to Moses. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the desert. Has that been your spirit or response to God when you're in danger? When you're in a situation where you need deliverance, have you simply complained? Or like Moses, who exampled faith in God, said this, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Wait on the Lord. J.I. Packer said in his book, Knowing God, wait on the Lord is a constant refrain in the Psalms, and it is a necessary word for God often keeps us waiting. He is not in such a hurry as we are, and it is not his way to give more light on the future than we need for action in the present or to guide us more than one step at a time. When in doubt, do nothing, but continue to wait on God. When action is needed, light will come. Isaiah 49:23 Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. I'm going to invite our music team forward. And while they're getting ready to lead us in a hymn of response, I want to bring you to the New Testament where the new song, the two mentions of the new song are connected in an eschatological, in a last times, in a final days context. And it is a new song that celebrates deliverance accomplished by the Lamb that was slain. Let me just read to you two, two portions of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. John writes, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, here's the new song. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. In Revelation 14, John says this. I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne. Verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, 
and the springs of water. Interesting. Fear Him. Why? Because of His creative power. John connects those two thoughts again.